Well, once again, Cedar Street Baptist Church, I love you so very much. And it's the joy of my heart to be with you here today as we open up God's Word. It's been, a, it's been an interesting journey. I'm going to be honest with you. I come to every sermon series wanting to learn. You learn a lot by teaching. And in uh, reading God's Word and in kind of diving into the Lord's Prayer, something that I've prayed and we've all said out loud a thousand times if we're believers in Jesus Christ, to stop and look at every single word the way that we had the past few weeks, I have learned an awful lot about what God expects of me in prayer. I hope you have as well. So if you're here for the first time, better to be late than never because we're in our last passage, but I'm also going to wrap it all up and kind of put it together in one big picture. The title of our sermon series has been Learning to Pray the Lord's Way. And we've been walking through one passage in Matthew chapter 6 called the Lord's Prayer. And if I was to quiz us all, this is one passage of Scripture. I believe about 90 to 95% of the people in this room probably have it written on your heart. And you should. It's a wonderful, beautiful passage of Scripture. But what we've been doing each week is taking one of the verses and pausing and saying, Jesus, what do you really want us to know about prayer in this passage? And so we've talked about all kinds of different areas. As we get further down, I'm going to kind of connect everything together, but As we start our final verse here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the title of our message is Seeking His Strength Over Our Sin. Seeking His Strength Over Our Sin. And I want to prime the pump for your heart and your mind by asking you a simple question. Here's the question that I want to ask. Are you aware in your daily life just how dangerous sin is? It's an important question. It's a simple question. It's not a simple answer. Are you aware in your daily life just how dangerous sin is? Now, let me make this real. I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to give you an image that I want you to put on your heart. Now, as I share this with you, it'll probably be somewhat comical, but there's a serious element to it. So it's okay to laugh when I tell you what I'm going to tell you, but also take the image that I'm going to share and make it real. Okay, here's what I want to tell you. So my father, whom I love dearly, he... uh, he got divorced from my mother back in 1993, probably the toughest year of my life. And my father, his whole life, had lived with his parents, my grandparents, and when he got married, moved right into the house with my mom, and therefore he never lived alone. So he didn't know how to cook, he didn't know how to do laundry, and when he first got divorced and got a one-bedroom apartment, it was ugly for a little while. Uh, in fact, he, he, for over a decade, he, he had three square meals outside of the house. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner were always out and never in. In fact, I'm so grateful to know my dad now. I go home for Christmas, and he's cooking. It's amazing. God is in the miracle-working business. <laughs> well, why do I say this? Well, one day, uh, so I had court-appointed visitation rights uh, that I'd go and see my dad every Wednesday and every other weekend. That was what the court set up. So when I went to see my dad... And I'd go to the refrigerator. There's only two things in the fridge every single week. A case of Yoo-Hoo and a case of Pepsi. And they weren't for me. They were for him. That man for about 10 years drank more Yoo-Hoo than any child on the planet. But this one Sunday, I go to visit my dad. And I look at the back of the refrigerator. And my lucky stars, I see a carton of orange juice. I thought, goodness gracious, there's something of nutritional value in this house. So I pushed aside the yoo and I pushed aside the Pepsi, and I reached for the back, and I grabbed the carton of orange juice, and I walked to the counter. I got a glass in one hand. I got the carton in the other. I take the lid off, and I start pouring it. And what comes out of that carton is a slimy black ooze. 
that I'd never seen before and that I'd never want to see again. And I was looking at the glass and looking at the carton, looking at the glass, looking at the carton, and the first thing I'm thinking of, if it's orange juice, something orange should be coming out of this carton. But it was jet black, and I finally looked at the carton, I turned it back, and the expiration date was two and a half years old. Now, again, I know it's funny, but here's where the serious part comes in. What I want you to do as I preach this word this morning, I want you to think of your soul as that carton of orange juice. Because when we don't take sin seriously, and we don't take Satan seriously, and we don't take spiritual warfare seriously, what we do is we push that carton of orange juice to the back of the fridge, and it starts to deteriorate to the point where our soul becomes what comes out of that orange carton, and it's not orange. That's the image that I want to give you as we walk through the passage here today. So what's the big idea? I gave you the image. Here's the sentence. If we pray the Lord's way, we will seek God's continual protection and deliverance from the power of sin. Boy, how we need both of those. We need his protection and we need his deliverance. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. If you don't have one, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be on page 964 in your Pew Bibles. And if you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, His perfect word. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to do what I've done each time that we've gone through this. I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer, but then we're going to stop and pause and meditate on verse 13. But I'm going to read 9 through 13 to get us ready in context. Hear God's word for us, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. Father, thank you for your word, both your written word that we've read and your incarnate word, your son, who gave us the words that we just read. And Father, we thank you that according to your word that you give us protection and deliverance from the evil of sin. And we come clinging to you, wanting this protection today. Father, help us to to feel the weight of these words, to feel the weight of sin, but also feel the glory and the grace and the mercy that is offered to us through your Son. Help us, we pray. In his name, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so let's connect the dots. And if you haven't been here, this is a perfect way to catch you right up and get you right into context. So when we started in Matthew chapter 6, we started in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay? So the focus of that, I give us a key word each week. The key word for that passage was Father. If you're a Christian, when you pray and your heart's been changed and you come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're adopted into the family of God and therefore when you pray to God with boldness, you can say our Father. He's no longer just your creator. He's also your Father. Okay, then we move a little bit further down the list. So we went, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Boy, you can't get that King James out of my heart. And then the next one, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, we said your kingdom come, your will be done. 
All right? So basically, when you're a Christian and you're praying, you are repenting and turning away from your own will and your own kingdom, and you're calling down His will and His kingdom. And the key word that we said in that verse was surrender. So now that we're praying, Jesus tells us to focus that we're praying to the Father. And as we pray to Him, we're saying, God, I don't want my will but yours. So we're surrendering. But then we get to the next part. Give us this day our daily bread. We're asking God to provide all of our needs. And the key word in that passage is dependence. God loves you. He wants you to call Him Father. He wants you to surrender to His will. He wants you to depend on what He provides. Now, God doesn't always give us what we want, but He will always, always, always If we are faithful to him, give us what we need. And many times, if we're being honest, he gives us more than we need. In fact, if you look at all the times that that Christ, through the power of the Father and the work of the Spirit, fed the 5,000s on a few loaves and fish, there was always leftovers. So God's a generous God, but he wants us to depend on him. All right, so now the picture's getting clearer. We are to look at him as Father. We are to surrender to his will and his kingdom. We are to depend on him to provide for our daily bread. All right, then we get to where we were last week. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We said forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom. It's the way in which we receive and we offer it in God's kingdom. And the key word there is mercy. God wants to show you mercy if you ask for it. And if you ask for it, you've got to be willing to share it with other people. All right, so now the picture is even clearer. He's our Father and loves us. And He wants us again to surrender to Him. And He wants us to depend on Him. And He wants us to go to seek His mercy. And He wants us to offer that mercy to other people. Then you get to this final part in Matthew six thirteen, And we're talking an awful lot about this word sin. And the key word that I want you to put in your hearts is the word protection. All right? Protection. Father, surrender, dependence, mercy, protection. Why do we need to be protected? Well... I want to talk about sin here for a second. And um, when we talk about sin, here's what we need to understand about it. Sin is not a created thing, okay? God is not the author of sin because sin is not part of his creation. What sin is, is a deterioration of his creation. God creates everything to be good and perfect. Sin is what taints it and spoils it. So a way to say, what is sin? Sin is just goodness spoiled, Sin is a carton of orange juice that once used to be orange juice, but it went bad. And it became that goppity gook that came out of it, right? Well, God didn't create the goppity gook. He created the orange juice. But when it wasn't used for what it should be used and it was ignored and pushed to the back of the refrigerator, it became what came out of it. That's what sin is. All right, you can't bottle up something and say this is sin. No, what it is is a tarnished version of goodness. That's what sin is. So that's, what we, that's how we can say that God is perfect and created a beautiful and perfect world and is not the author of sin, but yet has allowed sin to be in our world. Because for God to eliminate sin, guess what he'd have to do? He'd have to eliminate our ability to do it. And to do that, he'd have to take away our free will. So as long as there are human beings with free will in this world, there will always be sin because we have the capacity to either do what God's called us to do or to do what we want to do. Now, the beauty of this, the end of the story, if you follow through in Revelation, you will see one day there will be a new heavens and new earth. And one of the greatest parts of that story is that God's going to give us a beautiful new resurrected body on a resurrected earth. And guess what? You will not even be able to sin. Your body will be incapable of sinning. I can't wait for that day. But it's not here yet. 
That's the great frustration and struggle of the Christian life is we lived in what's called the already and the not yet. The already is we've been saved and secured in the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've already had your ticket punched for eternal life. The, the not yet is God's working that out in our lives. And one of the ways he does that is to clean out the sin in our lives, but most importantly, protect us from future sin. Now, you need to know where the enemy is. Okay, There's three enemies before your feet hit the floor in the morning. When you step on the ground, you've got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going to talk about all those because I think we get these things out of whack a little bit. But the world, the flesh, and the devil will lead you into temptation and will lead you into evil. And when we pray the Lord's way, what we are saying is, Lord Jesus, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil that the world, the flesh, and the devil would love us to go into. That's why Jesus makes this such an emphasis that it's the final words of this prayer. It's the last thing he, we, he wants us to have on our mind as we're praying. So as we walk through this passage, I have just two points. I'm not going to say anything about burnt casseroles because somebody probably burned theirs this past week. The last time I said I'd get us out here on time. But I uh, only got two, two points for this passage as well, and it's right out of the text. Nothing fancy about it, okay? This is just right from the text. The first thing I want us to see, number one, seek the Lord's protection from the temptation of sin. Seek the Lord's protection from the temptation of sin. It's pretty simple. Now, as I was praying through this, I think a lot of times you want to let Scripture interpret Scripture because God, God has a lot to say, and He says a lot better than I do. So when I think about temptation, I, I really want to know what God has to say about it. So what I'm going to do is share with two chapters in Scripture, two chapters that tell us more about temptation than you could learn from any other textbook. The first of those is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In fact, this is, I got a couple short passages to, to share. This is a longer one. So if you want to read along, grab your pew Bible or your other, or your Bible if you brought one. In your pew Bible, it's page 1137. I'll give everybody a, a second to turn there. So it's page 1137 in your pew Bible. But if you, uh, if you brought your own Bible, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This will help us to understand God's viewpoint on temptation. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as I read this, I'm going to stop and make some comments. But when we get towards the end, the last two verses tell us everything that we need to know. But I'm reading the whole passage because in the words of the great theologian, uh, Ronnie Sykes, we need to put it in context, right? You've got to keep it in its context. All right. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1, and I'll stop at verse 14. I want to read this and we'll stop and pause along the way. Here, so here's the picture. Paul's writing a letter to a church in Corinth, and most of these Christians are Jewish Christians who came to faith after being born and raised in Jewish heritage and then acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he's telling them, look back to our, our past. Look back to the history of Israel to know how dangerous temptation really is. And here is what Paul had to say to the church. He said, starting in verse 1 of chapter 10, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So let me stop there. Paul's saying, remember what happened. The nation of Israel was in slavery in Egypt. And God, we, we all know the story, even the young ones in this room who had vacation Bible school, you guys know the story, right? So they were in Egypt, 
and God leads them out of Egypt. They part the Red Sea. They walk over to, across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And then they begin this 40-year journey, walking in circles as an entire generation perishes because of their sin. Because of their sin. Start in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the capital D, destroyer, meaning Satan. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, here's the key verses, these two right here. If you're a note taker in your Bible, underline these. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. All right, three things from this passage. God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. There is no point in your life when you're in the midst of temptation where you do not have an ability to repent and run away. God will always allow you to be in a situation, but never keep you in one where there's not an opportunity for exit. That's my second point. With temptation, there will always be a way of escape. So think about any temptation that you've ever had. Think of some of the worst sins that you've ever done. You cannot say, God, I had no ability not to do this. You do if you have the Holy Spirit, and you do if you're a Christian. God will give you a way of escape. Now, the third thing in that passage, I'd say flee temptation and don't flirt with it. You see over and over and over, God's command is not to play around with sin. Not to stand up and think that with your own power and your own words that you can conquer sin or conquer the devil. No, over and over and over, it says to flee. Flee temptation. Flee evil. Flee idolatry. Here's the thing with this. There's an awful lot of what's mentioned in this passage that is prominent in this community and in this country. And I don't see us fleeing. You know, one thing that's mentioned here is sexual immorality. It's become awful prominent in this country for young adults to live together outside the bed of marriage. You know, some of the funny ways in which we talk about this is, well, you've got to take a, a car for the old spin before you purchase it. No, not according to this passage. But what do we do? We flirt with it. We go as far as we can saying, how far can I go without God condemning my sin? And, and what Paul's saying, why would you want to go all, to, all the way to the edge? Turn the other direction completely. You're not meant to try to flirt with temptation and see how strong you are. You're meant to just run. You know, one of the, the images I have in my head when I'm tempted to sin is I think about Joseph in the book of Genesis when Potiphar's wife was tempting him. He didn't sit down with Potiphar's wife and say, well, I think we should pray about this. No, he ran. He ran so fast he forgot his coat. He just got out of Dodge. We can't, we can't play with sin. 
it, your soul will become like the orange juice carton. And you may not even know when it's happening. But if you will not repent and if you fall into temptation, God says you're never so far that you can't turn away. Today's the day to turn away. Stop playing games. Sin is nothing to mess around with. It will destroy your soul now and forever. Temptation is nothing to be messed around with. Now, here's some clarity I want to bring to this. There's a difference between testing and tempting. God will test you. He will never tempt you. All right? So a better way to say this, I think, would be that God tests us for righteousness but he will never tempt us for evil. All right, you think about where sin started, right? In the garden, the Garden of Eden. When God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that they eat it, they will have the same knowledge and be like him. He did not do that to tempt them, saying, don't eat that, I know it's good fruit. It would taste so good, but don't do it. He simply said, you can have anything you want in this garden. Stay away from there. That's not for you. But what happened? When Satan found his way into the garden, he began not to test but to tempt. And he did so by deceiving them. And he deceived them by trying to make them believe that by following God, they were missing out on something good. And that's where all sin happens. Sin takes place when Jesus is not enough. You know, let me take it back to the elephant in the room. Let me talk about the word sex for a minute. Because I've been, I've been on both sides of this extreme. Okay, I, I was a sinner and certainly did not come to faith until my mid-20s. And I wish I had remained pure until marriage, and I didn't. It's one of the great regrets of my life. But when you're young, sometimes you think the restriction that God puts on your life to wait till you're married to have sex, you think that by waiting, you're going to miss out on something good. And God says, if you honor me, you're going to have something better. And so you can improve on doing it God's way. Now, if you're in this room and you've already been guilty of that, know that there's mercy and there's forgiveness. And I'm, I'm living proof. God, God saw fit to call me to be a preacher where a decade and a half ago I was living in some pretty significant sin. So there is mercy and forgiveness on the other side of the cross, but you have to run from temptation. Don't even play around with it. Now, when it comes to testing, we read this in our, our last sermon series in the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 3. I said there's two chapters in the Bible that talk about temptation that really give us an understanding. One we've already read, 1 Corinthians 10. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 3 says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Here's the thing. God must test you. He must do it. Because if you're never tested... You'll never know what's in because it'll never come out. I'm going to tell you something I learned, and I've shared this with several people over the course of the last few years when I've done counsel. When I was, right before I got married, I was on fire for Jesus. I was at four different Bible studies at three different churches every single week. I mean, I just could not get enough of God's word and could not get enough of the fellowship I was getting with other men in the church, and, and I was just on fire for the Lord. Well, I ended up getting married, okay, and this church stood right there. In the first few months of my marriage, I, I, you know, I was learning how to be a married man. I know this has not happened to any of you, by the way. I know your marriages are perfect. You've never been in a disagreement. But the first few months of getting married, I was in constant argumentation and conflict, and, and I, I would lose my temper, and, and, and I would 
go into my prayer closet and pray and say, God, am I just for, am I, how far away am I from you today? And here's what I realized. I wasn't further away from God. That capacity to sin, that anger that came out in my heart, it was always there, but I was single. There was no, there was no opportunity for that sin to come to the surface. It's like pond scum. It's always there. But until someone kicks it up and it rises to the surface, you don't know that it's there. So some of you right now, you're in serious conflict in marriages. And you're in conflict in your, in your, in your jobs maybe, in your neighborhoods. And you may actually be closer to God now than you were when you didn't have that conflict. Because God says, good, now you're willing to get serious with me. Now I'm going to bring this sin to the surface because I want to clean it out. Repent. And turn away from it. And let me love you. And let me restore you into fellowship with me. Some of you have sin that is pond scum. And it's fallen to the bottom of the pond. Well, guess what? You're in conflict because he's kicking it up. God must test you. But he will never tempt you. He tests you towards righteousness. He will never tempt you with evil. And to get away from that temptation... We pray for God to protect us from it. God, don't let me even get into the situation. For the young folks in here who are in relationships, guess what? You don't go into a dark room, close the door, put on George Strait, lay down, and then say, God, give me strength. You stay out of the room. You keep the light on. Flee temptation. Flee it. It's the only way. So that's number one. Seek the Lord's protection from the temptation of sin. Number two, seek the Lord's deliverance from the evil of sin. Okay, the last part of verse 12 just says, but deliver us from evil. Now, if you had to ask me and said, Bo, what's the, if you had to list your top three or four favorite topics to talk about, and then your top three or four least favorite topics to talk about, one of my least favorite topics to talk about would be spiritual warfare. My first topic would be money. It's probably the least favorite thing I like talking about. But number two, spiritual warfare, and I'm going to tell you why. Because there are two extremes in the church when it comes to talking about the spiritual warfare that happens in our lives, specifically the works of Satan. There's two different extremes. And I'm going to tell you right now, we need as a church to avoid these extremes. Here's number one. The most common extreme is we believe Satan doesn't even exist. We read the scriptures and think that the works of Satan were a thing of the past, and we let our guards down, and we get destroyed by the attacks of the evil one. All right, that's one extreme, to believe that Satan doesn't even exist. Here's the other extreme. Now, this is typically in every church. There's a minority here, but there's some who take passages way out of context. And this other extreme is to see Satan around every corner, under every rock, and most importantly, to think that you and your own power can bind the work of Satan. You can't. In fact, you will not find, unless you misinterpret Scripture, you will not find a single passage in the entire Bible that tells human beings to bind the power of Satan. You cannot bind Satan's power. He's stronger than you. He's smarter than you. He's been sinning a lot longer than you've been righteous. And if you stick your nose where it's not meant to be, you're in trouble. These are the two extremes. And these are the extremes that we need to understand according to the Word of God. And I'm going to tell you how real this is. In this week, upon studying this particular passage, I've experienced a presence of the evil one. I'm telling you, he's real. He is real as the air you breathe. However, my response to that 
is not being chasing after him, not screaming words at him in the name of Jesus. In fact, uh, Adrian Rogers, the great Baptist preacher, uh, one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard, said, we are not called to be evangelical ghostbusters. We are not supposed to go around screaming and hollering and, and, and in the name of Jesus, binding this and loosing this. That's not what we're called to do. The scriptures teach us a much different way. They teach us a much different way. And here's, here's what I want to say. First of all, we need to know Ephesians 6. We need to know the full armor of God. All right, if you've never read Ephesians 6, I'm going to read it and talk about it very quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which, the word, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. That passage does two things. Number one, it teaches that Satan is real and he's not to be messed around with. Number two, it also says that you're supposed to put on the armor and it's not you that goes on the offensive, it's you that stands firm in the attack. Okay, here's, here's what it says. Put on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and unceasing prayer. If I had to boil that down, I would just say this. The word of God, the spirit of God, and the prayers of the people of God. You know what? As this church grows, the attacks from the evil one to break up what's being done in this room are going to continue and as they continue, they're going to be coming at you in different angles. And I am so grateful I can think of at least three people in this room right now who have told me they are praying for me and praying for the attacks that Satan would do to this church. And I will take every single prayer that you are willing to offer for the hedge of protection from the attacks of Satan because he's real and would, he would love nothing more than to watch this church break into a thousand pieces. He hates, he absolutely despises the words that Jody sang here, that it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, that when he hears those words, he doesn't know what to do. So what is he going to try to do? He's going to try to deceive in such a way that we're split apart instead of being brought together. However, for that other extreme, okay, so we pray, we ask for God's protection, we read the word of God, we turn away from sin, we turn towards God. The other extreme is we let the protecting, we leave it to God. We do not go out on the offensive attacking Satan and screaming unbiblical things that have no power. All right, listen to what Scripture says. Two big passages here. One is James chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Don't attack the devil. Don't scream at the devil. Resist him. Turn to righteousness, and he's going to flee. The other, Psalm 91, verse 14. These are the words that God speaks to his people. God says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. That's so beautiful. 
I believe this. You cannot cast out darkness by screaming at darkness in the name of Jesus. You cast out darkness by turning to light. And that's what God's called us to do. That's what God's called us to do. I want to share a story as we draw to a close here. The, uh, now, I do want to say this. We all have different experiences. We've all seen demonic activity at some point. For those in this room, there's a few that have spent a lot of time on the mission field. If you've ever been in an unchurched area, you've seen the work of Satan more vividly than probably you've ever seen it here in the United States. I, I saw bits and pieces of it in El Salvador. There are other people here who've been on the mission field for quite some time. Here's the deal. If, you're, if you are in a place where they're not well-churched, there's not a lot of Christians, there's not a lot of presence of the Holy Spirit, yes, I do believe that demons can indwell human beings. It is very real. It is very scriptural. Here, especially in this church, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil cannot indwell you because Satan will not, or, or the Spirit of God will not have any roommates. Okay? Satan has no business inside of you, but you can still be attacked and deceived. Okay, now here's the here's the reason I want to bring this up. I heard this amazing story that really opened my eyes to this. So John Piper, a pastor and an author that has greatly influenced my thinking over the years. John Piper said when he was a young pastor, all right, he was in Minnesota and he got a call late one night from a bunch of college students. And these college students had a friend, a female friend in her early 20s who was possessed by a demon. And it was real. All right, she was not herself. She was foaming at the mouth, angry. She had this distorted face, and they didn't know what to do. So you know what they did? They, they locked her in a room, and they sat at the, at the entrance of the room. They would not let her out of the room because they loved her. They didn't want her to just go out in public, possessed by a demon. So they called John Piper, and he went out, he went out to meet them with his Bible. And apparently for quite some time, these men were screaming at the demon. I bind you and I loose this and they're screaming and hollering and nothing was happening. It was just, it was actually making the, the demon laugh. So when he got there, he just started reading scripture over and over, reading the words of God and praying. And then he did one thing. He gathered around the woman with his friends and they began to sing. And they began to sing a hallelujah chorus. And the unison of these Christians singing this hallelujah chorus drove the demon inside the woman so crazy that the demon departed. The woman fell flat on her face. And when they picked her up, her face returned. Her soul was once again restored. That lady once eventually became a Christian and became a member of John Piper's church. And isn't that a beautiful portrait of what God calls us to do? If we as a church are in unison and in worship, where there is worship, there cannot be Satan, he will tempt us not to worship. But when we're gathered together, we're resisting the devil, we're repenting of sin, we're walking away from temptation, and we're coming together in unison and in worship, and we're singing the praises of Jesus, the devil does not want to be anywhere near that. He will flee, turn away from the darkness, and turn toward the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. That's what he's teaching us to pray. And I'll say this last thing as we get to the very end. I said before, there's three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Can I say this one last thing? The flesh, which is who we are. There's enough sin in my heart that I'd be in a whole lot of trouble even if Satan never existed. You guys remember the old comedian Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it. That was the headline for every one of his acts. 
Well, how many times do we throw blame at Satan where Satan's like, look, I'm bad, but uh, even I didn't do that, right? I mean, come on, we, we have so much sin in our own hearts that we're capable of doing evil things, even if Satan is, not, is part of the picture. I mean, we need, we need to look at our own heart and realize the capacity we have to do bad things. I wish I could tell you as a pastor that, that God has pre- preserved me in such a way that there's no capability of me falling into really serious sin. But I'm telling you, the first day I think about that, I'm in trouble. I am in serious trouble. That's why confession is the first thing we do before we sing. Because we need to be cleansed. We need to, we need to be restored. And we also need to be protected from the attacks of the evil one. But we need to be protected from ourselves. We need to be protected from ourselves. It's not a helpful exercise when you're sinning to try to analyze it and say, is that me or is that just the world or is that just the devil? You don't know most times. When you watch the news, it could be Satan or it could be that very evil people are committing very evil acts because their evil has never gone unchecked. Whatever the case may be, God says don't analyze it, run away from it. Run away from it. Run to the Father as a innocent child so how do i sum this up in one sentence i would just sum it up this way jesus christ is the light of the world and if we follow him we will not walk in the darkness of death but in the light of life it's not that we pretend that satan doesn't exist but if you're focused on jesus and your eyes on him and you're following him step by step by step you don't have to be fearful of the attacks of satan because the closer you are to him the further away satan will be you need to be scared of satan when all of a sudden that you're not even thinking about jesus because that's when your guard is down and that's when attacks happen the most that's why every single time people come to me in this community and say man cedar street's moving god's blessing people are coming I, on one side, I say, amen. I say, on the other side, I say, Jesus, I need you more now than I've ever needed you before. Let's cling to him. Church, I love you so very much. I'm all in. All chips on the table. You know my heart. I'm here 30 years unless the Spirit moves me somewhere else. I want to see this church grow. I want to see this church blessed. I want to see this church reflect the kingdom of God. And here's what I know. If I'm here 30 years, we're going to be under a lot of attacks. But if we're close to each other and we're close to God, And we're confessing our sin and turning to light. Darkness will not be able to thwart the work of God that he wants to do in this church. Stay close to each other. Stay close to me. Stay close to Jesus.